Dear Father, once again, we are grateful for the opportunity to be here and just talk about something that is so near and dear to your heart, that of seeking and saving the lost, that of sharing good news that Jesus saves, that he can save to the uttermost, that he's doing a special work of cleansing even now. Bless our time together in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, the cycle of evangelism, creating a culture of evangelism in the church. I think most of us have heard about the cycle of evangelism before. I think it's one of the most important things a church can do when it comes to evangelism. And there's some good biblical reasons for why we encourage this. Here's the statement that you might have noticed in your um, lesson. I don't know if it's in this one. It might be in one of the previous ones. But it's Christ's method alone. It's a quote from the book Ministry of Healing, page 143. Christ's method alone will give true success in reaching the people. The Savior mingled with men as one who desired their good. What's the first thing he did? He mingled. Jesus was friendly. He took his time to get to know people. He was interested in people. He asked them about themselves. He showed his sympathy for them and ministered to their needs. How did Jesus minister to the needs of most of the people that he came in contact with? Medical ministry, right? Health ministry. In his case, he healed them. Uh, we can't do the same type of healing that Jesus did, but do we have a message that we can give that does bring physical healing? Yes. yes, and that's why we have the health message as the right hand of the gospel. So we make friends with people, we find out what their needs are, we minister to their needs, often through our medical missionary work that we do, and we win their confidence, and then Jesus said, follow me. So those steps, of course, important when it comes to evangelism. We see three distinct phases in the ministry that Jesus did. He befriended those in the community. He made friends. He ministered to their needs and won their confidence. Then he shared the word. So those are the three key methods that we use for reaching people. Making friends, ministering to their needs, winning their confidence, and then sharing the word. So if we take these three areas and we put it on... Okay. So far, so good. We found the right PowerPoint. We have so many of them, it's hard to keep track. So we spoke about Christ's method, the one that gives true success. He showed his sympathy for them, ministered to their needs, won their confidence, then he said, follow me. This was the slide I was looking for. So if you take Christ's method of evangelism and you divide it into three key areas. The first thing Jesus did was make friends, then he won their confidence, then he shared the word with the people. Out of these three, where do you think we as Adventists are typically the strongest? Making friends, winning people's confidence, or sharing the Word? How many think sharing the Word is our strength as Adventists? I agree with you. I think when it comes to preaching the Word, I don't think there's any other group that could really match the Adventists, right? All of our doctrines are backed up on Scripture. We've got all kinds of Bible studies we use. We've got charts. We have a great prophetic understanding of Scripture. Uh, we need to do that. We need to be as efficient and effective in sharing the Word as we possibly can. But if you're going to be effective in sharing the Word, you need to have people to share the Word with. So that is to make friends and win in their confidence. Now, where do you think we as Adventists are typically the weakest? Making friends or winning people's confidence? I think it's kind of a 50-50 here. How many of us have someone that we know we would consider a friend, but they're not a member of the church, they're not an Adventist? 
might even be a family member. All of us know someone, right? But if you found yourself in a situation where you're a good friend of someone, but if you try to share the word with them or bring up spiritual themes, they just don't seem interested. Have you noticed that? They're like, ah, yeah, yeah, I got my religion, you got yours, yeah, whatever, and they kind of push you away. One of the challenges I think we as Adventists have is winning people's confidence so they are willing to hear what we have to say, right? Um, how do we win somebody's confidence? Well, we've got to minister to their need. We minister to their need, you know, through whatever means we can, but really we want to awaken an interest in spiritual things. That's the main goal. How do we win their confidence when it comes to spiritual things? So, let me give you an illustration of how we can do this. Several years ago, we moved to California. I was pastoring for nine years in the Midwest. We moved from Missouri to California, got a house in Sacramento. And uh, just a couple of houses down from where we were staying, we met Mr. Nick. Mr. Nick was a nice guy, he and his wife, and their kids were in high school, and uh, my kids were little at the time. But he had these big dogs, and sometimes he'd have his dogs in the front yard, and we would drive by, and my kids would see the dogs, and they'd want to stop and pet the dogs, and so we became friends. And every time I'd drive by and I'd see his garage door would be open or he'd be out working in the yard, we always stopped and always visited. We became pretty good friends. But he knew that I was a pastor, and uh, every now and again I'd try and say something, bring up something spiritual, and it became very evident that Nick was not interested in spiritual things. He was uh, doing quite well. He had his own business. He was uh, rather successful. And, uh, you know, I tried to bring up something spiritual, and he'd kind of say, ah, oh, you know, I'm not really that interested in spiritual things. So I began to wonder, how can I win his confidence so that I can at least share with him the Word? Right around that time, we were doing an AFCO training program, and one of the things that was presented in our AFCO class is the importance of listening building a friendship to the point where someone is willing to share with you a genuine concern that they have. So I learned that at that uh, AFCO program that we were doing. And then it says, when you found out what a genuine need is, then you need to pray about that. And they taught us a little follow-up on how we could do this. So I thought, okay, here's an opportunity for me to practice this, to try this out. So built the friendship with Nick until one day I was talking to him, and uh, I asked him, say, Nick, how's everything going? And he stopped and he said, well, it's not going that well. Well, of course, I've been studying this stuff in AFCO. And I said, wait, wait, I need to pay attention now. This is important. So I said, why is it? And he says, well, our daughter, she just graduated high school. He says, our daughter just decided to move to Las Vegas with a friend. Now, he's a secular-minded man, but he knows Vegas is not the place for an 18-year-old. And he says, we're rather concerned about that, meaning him and his wife. We're rather concerned about that. That's what I needed. So I responded with the three F's. Have you guys talked about the three F's yet? So you'll learn about the three F's. But I responded with the, th with the three F's. I said, well, Nick, I can understand the way you feel. It's the first F. I probably would feel the same way if my daughter was 18 and she wanted to move to Las Vegas. But I have found that God answers prayer. I'm going to pray about that. So the first F is, oh, I can understand the way you feel. The second F is, well, others have felt that way before, but I have found that God answers prayer. I understand the way you feel. Others have felt that way before, but I have found God answers prayer. I'm going to say it one more time because I think it's important. 
So you build a relationship with someone to the point where they are willing to share with you a genuine concern that they have. When they do that, you say, well, I can understand the way you feel. I probably would feel the same, but others have felt that way before. And I have found that God answers prayer. I'm going to pray about that. Uh, others have felt that way before, but I have found that God answers prayer. Understand the way you feel? Others have felt that way before, but I have found God answers prayer. Call that the three S. Now, when I said that to Nick, I said, well, I understand the way you feel. Others have felt this way before, or I probably would feel the same. Then I said, but I have found, and he kind of <laughs> perked up a little bit. I said, but I have found that God answers prayer. Oh, <laughs> you could see the letdown. He thought I was going to say something exciting. He said, oh. He kind of began to roll his eyes a little bit, like, yeah, yeah. And so I, I, when I saw his response, I realized, well, I don't want to keep pursuing that. I, but I wanted to get it out there. I said, you know, I will pray about that. Understand the way you feel God answers prayer. I found God answers prayer. I'm going to pray about that. And then he kind of said, yeah, yeah. And so I changed the conversation. I remember he had a speedboat parked next to his house. How fast does your boat go anyway? He started talking about something totally different. But I wanted to plant that seed. So now we went home, and for family worship... We had the kids together and we said, we have a special prayer request that we're going to pray about tonight. We're going to pray that somehow through this experience, God will reveal himself to Miss Nick. So all the kids said, okay, we're going to pray about that. So that was our regular prayer request for worship in the morning, worship at night. And then we went to prayer meeting and they said, anybody, any prayer requests? I said, yeah, 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 I got a prayer request. Please pray for Mr. Nick. They didn't know who Mr. Nick is, but we prayed anyway. Prayed a prayer meeting, we prayed at home, we had the kids praying. I prayed, said, Lord, please somehow work through the situation to reveal yourself to Nick. And so we let that go for about two weeks, where we just spent a lot of time in prayer. This is a special prayer request. And then at the end of the two weeks, I went back, and because he had brought it up the first time, I could bring up the second now, so we were talking, and I said, you know, Nick... I've been praying about that situation with your daughter. Has God done anything yet? You should have seen the look on his face. He kind of lifted an eyebrow a little bit and he said, You've been praying about it? I said, Yeah, I've been praying about it. Has God done anything yet? And there was a pause and finally he said, Well, funny you should say that. Just today she called. She said things didn't work out in Vegas. She's coming home. I said, Praise the Lord. And then he looked again and smiled at me and he says, you think that has anything to do with you praying? I said, oh, I know it does. <laughs> and then he asked another question. He says, does God always answer your prayer? I said, he always does. I said, God can also answer your prayer. He said, I don't know how to pray. I said, would you like to know? And we began to have a talk about how to pray. And I learned an important lesson. It's not for us to convert the heart but if somebody brings a concern, we can take it to the Lord in prayer and then we can follow up in a couple of weeks and we will be amazed at what God will do to reveal Himself to someone when we intercede on their behalf. We're actually able to start some basic Bible studies with Mr. Nick. He became interested in spiritual things because he began to wonder, well, was this just coincidence or did this have something to do with him praying? And So how do we win somebody's confidence? Number one, Build a relationship with the person until they are willing to share with you a genuine concern that they have. You don't have to fix the problem. 
You just need to listen to the problem. And once they share that with you, you say, I can understand the way you feel. Others, I'm sure, have felt the same who have been in your situation. But I have found that God answers prayer. And that's it. Just plant the seed. But then you need to actually get involved in praying specifically for that person. And what do you pray? You say, Lord, please, somehow reveal yourself through this situation. And that's the kind of prayer request that you want to take to the church. You want to pick an individual and you want to pray specifically for that person, for that situation, that God will reveal himself through that to that person. Let a couple of weeks go by and then go ask them. Say, hi, I've been praying about that situation. Has God done anything yet? I always like to add the word yet. Because sometimes God has not done anything just yet. A little more time is needed. They say, oh no, it's going even worse. I'd say, well, you know what? Don't worry about it. I know God will answer. He has a plan. Then you pray some more, right? You wait to see what God is going to do. Evangelism is working with God. And too often in evangelism, we leave God out of the story and we just yeah, telling them everything they need to know. But the reality is they need to connect with God. They need to know God. They need to experience God. So we're looking for opportunities for the Holy Spirit to work in that person and through that situation. Now, why is intercessory prayer so important when it comes to evangelism? Well, as you all know, we're involved in a great controversy, right? The forces of good against the forces of evil. Christ and His angels against the devil and His angels. And in this great controversy between good and evil, there are certain rules of engagement. There are certain things that God will not allow Satan to do. And we can be very grateful for that. Because if Satan had his way, we would probably all either be demon-possessed or dead, right? But God will not allow the devil to do that. So he protects us. He holds the devil in check. Now it is true, if somebody opens up the door, yes, there is such a thing as demon possession. But God won't allow the devil to possess someone, at least not until they've had a, a chance to make a choice. But in this great controversy, because the devil is held in check by certain rules, you might say, God at the same time, to be fair, has also restricted what he does to influence someone. Otherwise, the devil will say, unfair, unfair, you're not allowed to do that. You're doing more than I can do to try and influence a person, right? So this great controversy is taking place. But when we intercede, and this is the power of intercessory prayer, when we intercede on behalf of somebody else, that gives God the legal right to do more to reach that person than He would do if we didn't intercede on their behalf. So when Satan says, unfair, unfair, you're not allowed to do that, God says, I have a right to do so because this person is praying specifically for them. And God is able to do more to reach that person. Now, I think it works both ways, right? Does the devil have uh, his people out there who are cooperating to try and increase his influence over people? Yes, absolutely. Likewise, as Christians, we should be praying specifically for individuals, enabling God, allowing God to do more to reach that person. And I think that's where the prayers of parents are so effective in reaching their children. Allowing God to do more to reach their children. That's why intercessory prayer is so important. And when it comes to winning a person's confidence, intercessory prayer is the key. Build that friendship. 
until they're willing to share with you a genuine concern that they have. Then you respond by saying, I understand the way you feel. Others have felt this way before, but I have found that God answers prayer. And then take it to the Lord in prayer and you'll be amazed at what God does in response to intercessory prayer. I don't think there is any prayer that God likes to answer more than when we intercede on behalf of somebody else. There's power in intercessory prayer. One other quick story here, and then we've got to keep going. I was doing an evangelistic series one time, and uh, we looked out in the congregation, and uh, a lady was there, and her husband was there. She is a member. He wasn't a member, but he came to all the meetings. We did the presentation on the Sabbath, and after the Sabbath presentation, we're visiting in the home, and I said, well, do you see the, what the Bible says about the Sabbath, and is it clear? And he said, yes, yes. And I said, do you see your way clear to keep the Sabbath? He said, no, I can't keep the Sabbath. I said, well, why can't you keep the Sabbath? He says, because I have to work on Saturday. I said, well, have you spoken to your boss about it? He says, oh, no, my boss, he's not interested. He's not religious. I said, well, you know what? I understand the way you feel. You want to take care of your family. And I know many others have felt the same in your situation. But I have found God answers prayer. I'm going to pray about that. So I began to pray about it. Well, a few days went by and he came back to me and he said, you know, I've been convicted. I'm going to talk to my boss about trying to get Saturdays off. I said, praise the Lord. God's got a plan. So he went and he spoke to his boss and he called me back and he says, you won't believe what happened. I said, what? He said, I spoke to my boss and my boss said, if you don't show up at work on Saturday, don't come on Monday, you're not going to have a job. Well, that's not what I was expecting. I was expecting some good news. He says, I'm sorry, I can't keep the Sabbath. I have to provide for the family. I said, well, I understand the way you feel. Others have felt that way before, but I'm going to pray because God's got a plan. Well, that Sabbath came by, and I got it to preach, and I looked out on the congregation, and here he was. He was sitting in church with his wife. I was surprised. At the end of the service, I was shaking everybody's hands, and came and shook his hand. I said, wow, God answered the prayer. He worked something out. So, well, I don't know what's going to happen. I said, well, didn't the boss say you have to be at work today? He says he did, but the more I thought about it, I just was convicted that I needed to stand up for what I knew to be right. I said, praise the Lord, God answered the prayer. Well, anyway, he went to work on Monday, and just as his boss had said, he called me up and he said, I've just lost my job. I said, well, don't worry, God's got a plan. Started praying. He said, do everything you can. Put out your resume, try to get a job. Look, see what's out there. They had a mortgage that was due, a family to support. So time went by, and I kept praying about it, and nothing. I called him up almost every day. Have you heard anything? No, nothing, nothing. I try this, try this. We're trying all kinds of things, but nothing was working. And I was the pastor, and I'm beginning to get really worried here. And I'm saying, Lord, come on, you know. <laughs> we told this guy to stand up. Where are you? We need you. And uh, the mortgage is due, and it's late. And uh, he told me the date and the amount, and I'm getting real nervous. And finally, I call him up, and I said, well, the mortgage company, will your bank accept the credit card payment? And I think, well, maybe I could help him out, because I know they financially, they just didn't have the money. I remember what he said. He said, now, pastor, you told me God's going to provide, didn't you? Said, yeah, you're right, you're right. I said, I'm trusting God, I'm trusting God. Well, it seemed like the very last minute, you know, they worry about having to lose their house now. And finally he calls me up and he said, I had a very interesting conversation this morning. I said, what was it? He said, the owner of the company that I used to work for called me up. Not the boss, but the owner. He called me up and the owner said that he heard what had happened to him. And he said, I am also a religious man. And I appreciate people standing up for what they believe in. Wow. He says, I want you to come back and work for us. And he said, well, sir, I, I can't work on Saturdays. He said, no, that's okay. 
we have an opening in a position that is higher than what you had, a supervisory position that doesn't require work on the weekends, and there's a pay increase. Call me up and say, well, praise the Lord. God worked it out. <laughs> and I've seen many of those kind of experiences where you put God to the test, right? Take him at his word. Intercede on behalf of somebody else and see what God will do. I found God sometimes to rearrange circumstances, as he did in this case. But in many times, God changes the individual despite the circumstances. I've seen that too. So God can change the heart. He can change the individual. Or he can change the circumstances. Sometimes he does a little bit of both, but sometimes he does one or the other. So take God at his word and then watch to see what will happen. So again, just to make friends, doesn't matter who it is, the neighbor, the friend, the person that you meet at the store, build that relationship. This is what we can do. Everyone can do this. Build that relationship to where they are willing to share with you a genuine concern that they have. When they share the concern, you just respond with the three F's and say, I'm going to pray about that. Make that a matter of prayer. Put it on your prayer list. And I think all of us should have some names that we're praying for on a regular basis, specifically. And we could all do this. Lord, please use this situation to reveal yourself. Follow up with that person two to three weeks and see what the Lord has done. That's how you win their confidence so that you can share more you can share the word. Does that make sense to everybody? Okay. Is that something we can all do? Yes. That is where it starts with evangelism. If we look at the example of Jesus set in the Bible, there are three phases to Christ's ministry. The first is the prepare phase, and that's where Jesus sent John the Baptist to prepare the way for Jesus. At a later point, Jesus sent out the 12 disciples, and they went and prepared before Jesus and then 70 others. And then Jesus would go after them. So the first is the prepare phase. When it comes to evangelism, we need to prepare for our evangelistic outreach. Then you have the preaching phase. And this is where Jesus went to those same cities where the preparation had been done. He went to the many towns uh, dotted around Galilee. And he preached in those cities and towns where the disciples had gone and prepared. And then we have our third phase, and that's the preserve phase. And an example of that is the early Christian church. After the ascension of Jesus... When the Holy Spirit came upon the disciples, they went forth preaching, and there was an abundant harvest of souls, while many of the people that were converted were the ones that heard the disciples and then heard Jesus, and now the follow-up of the disciples, and they were converted, and the church grew. So three phases in evangelism. Prepare, and then you've got the preach, and then you've got the preserve phase. Each of those three phases are important. So you have the... Uh, Nurturing, well, let's start with the personal work. This is making friends and winning their confidence, sharing the word, the public presentation, and then the nurturing of those new believers. And I think sometimes we neglect a little bit this new phase where, you know, they become avenues, they're kind of on their own, you see them once a week, but uh, it takes a little bit more than that. It requires some nurturing, some discipling, some growth, some effort. That's an important phase. Each of those are very important. And we can see these three phases illustrated, I think, in a parable that Jesus told that we're all very familiar with. We've all heard the parable about the Good Samaritan. It talks about a man traveling from Jerusalem down to Jericho. A couple of weeks ago, uh, we were actually in Israel, and we had an opportunity to go from Jerusalem down to Jericho. And Jerusalem's up in the mountains, but you go down to Jericho. Jericho is sort of on the shores of the Dead Sea. The Dead Sea is the lowest point on earth. And it's a, quite a travel from high all the way down to Jericho. 
Jesus said a Jew was going from Jerusalem down to Jericho, and it's a, a very interesting road as you're driving between the mountains, and it's lots of gorges and caves and those kind of things, deserty area. And you could just imagine when Jesus told the story that they would, this was a dangerous road, lots of hideouts for thieves. And a man's traveling from Jerusalem down to Jericho, and he falls amongst the thieves. And what do the thieves do to the man? They beat him up. What else do they do? Strip him of his raiment. And what's the third thing? They stole everything he had, and they left him half dead. All right? They left him there to die. So they beat the man, they stripped him, and they left him to die. Well, then it says a Pharisee came by. Well, actually, it was a priest that came by, a priest and a Levite. The priest came by, and the priest didn't help the man. The Levite didn't help the man. But the Samaritan came by, and Jesus said the Samaritan had compassion upon the man. So he went to the man, ministered to his needs, uh, poured in oil and wine in his wounds. What were the two things he did? Oil and wine, poured it into his wounds. Probably covered him with his own robe, because the thieves had stolen his garment put him on a donkey, took him to an inn. And when he got to the inn, took care of the man that night, but then he gave some money, some talents, to the innkeeper and said, now you take care of the man, and if you spend anything extra that I haven't given you, I will repay you when I come back again. Now, of course, that parable tells us how we ought to take care of our fellow man, but like so many of the parables of Jesus, the whole gospel is contained in that parable. The man traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho, in one sense, can represent the whole human race. The thieves can represent the devil. And when Adam and Eve listened to the devil back in the Garden of Eden, they lost that robe of light, didn't they? What does clothes represent in the Bible? Righteousness, right? And the wages of sin is? So they were left half dead. Now the Levite can represent the Jewish people. It's the chosen people. Could Israel really take care of the sin problem? Or really, Jesus takes care of the sin problem. What were they to do? Point people to Jesus, right? Point people to Jesus. So the Levite comes by. He can't really help the man. The priest come by, and the priest represents the sacrificial system or the ceremonial law, the offering of animals. Could that really take care of the sin problem? No. That was a type or a foreshadowing of Jesus. In the parable, who does the Good Samaritan represent? Clearly, it's Jesus. Jesus comes by. Why does the Good Samaritan help the man? Because he had compassion upon him. Why did Jesus leave the glories of heaven and come to this sin-polluted planet? Because he had compassion on us. What does the Good Samaritan do to the man? It says he poured in oil and wine into his wounds. What does wine represent in the Bible? The blood of Christ. That's justification. What does oil represent in the Bible? Holy Spirit, that's sanctification. What has Jesus done to take care of the sin problem? Justification and sanctification. Covers the man with his own robe, the righteousness of Jesus. Puts him on his donkey and takes him to the inn. Where does Jesus take those who have responded to his grace? Those that he has justified and those who are being sanctified. Sanctification is the work of a lifetime. Where does Jesus take them? To the church. Did the Good Samaritan give talents to the innkeeper? Give him some resources? Yes. Has Jesus given talents to the church? Yes. And Jesus says, you take care of these people that I bring to you. You look after them. You take care of them. And if you put forth anything extra that I haven't given you, I will repay you when I come back again. 
Do you think anybody's going to feel shortchanged when Jesus comes back the second time? No, of course not. So in the parable of the Good Samaritan, not only is it how we ought to treat our fellow man, but it's how we as a church should function in the context of the world. Jesus is the one that saves. It's his sacrifice that provides forgiveness. But we have an important part in ministering to those who have responded to his grace, right? We're the in. The church is the in. You and I are the innkeepers. God has given us talents. God has given us resources. And God has said, you take care of these people for me. They are precious in the sight of Jesus. We have a responsibility to nurture those new believers. Very important. That's why we call amazing disciples. We've been told to be disciple makers. And that's an important part of evangelism. Sometimes it's the neglected phase of evangelism. All right, so let's talk for a little bit about this harvest cycle. When you look in nature, you can learn some important lessons that we can apply in the spiritual realm. When it comes to uh, the harvest cycle, there's six phases. The first is what we call personal preparation. And if you look at a farmer, before the farmer goes out to plow the field and to sow the seed, he's got some personal preparation that he needs to do. I pastored for three and a half years in Iowa, and then I was five years in Missouri. A lot of farming happening there. I know there's a lot of farming happening here as well, corn and soybeans. Is that what they farm here, corn and soybeans? And uh, before the farmers would go out to uh, prepare or actually plow the field, there was a lot of activity in the barn. They would have to make sure everything's there for the tractor, and they would be working on this and working on that and get things organized. So the personal preparation is the first phase. That's true in the church, and we're going to see the connection here in just a minute. You've got the preparing of the soil. That's where the farmer goes out and he plows up the ground. The sowing of the seed, the planting, then the cultivating, watching the plants grow, um, removing the weeds and that kind of thing. And then that results in the harvesting. And they go out and they collect the soybeans, harvest the soybeans or the corn. Then they have to preserve it. They have to put it somewhere, so they put it in the barn, in the silo. So six phases in the harvest cycle. Each of these has a counterpart, spiritually speaking. So we're going to start with the very first one, and that's personal preparation. How does this relate to the church? What are some of the things that we're looking for in this first phase? Some of the things that we as a church want to emphasize in the personal preparation is revival, prayer, planning, training programs, developing a church mission centered around the gospel commission. So that's where it begins. Sometimes we will have a church contact us at Amazing Facts and say, we want to have an evangelist come to an evangelistic meeting. We always ask, well, that's great, but what type of preparation has been done before the evangelist gets there? Some churches are very good in their personal preparation. Others haven't done anything. Well, we can almost guarantee what the results will be if that's the case, right? They're not what you want if there's no personal preparation that's done. But if the church gets together and they begin to recognize that God has called them to do a special work. And they spend time in prayer, and they plan, and they do some training, and they begin to reach out into the community, leading up to the evangelistic meetings. Those meetings will be far more successful than if the church does nothing. So the personal preparation phase is important. Now, in the harvest cycle, there are certain harvest indicators that you look for. So if uh, you're a farmer and you plant the seed, you begin to see the plants grow, you are busy watching to see what you have to do based on how they respond. Uh, if you're growing tomatoes, for example, you have a garden, and you go out and you look at your tomato plants one day, and the leaves are just hanging down like this. What does that tell you? 
it needs water. You need to water the plants. If you go look at the plants another day and uh, there are these ripe, soft, red tomatoes hanging on the vine, what do you have to do? You got to pick the tomatoes. What happens if you don't pick the tomatoes? Well, they go bad, right? So you look and there are certain harvest indicators that you're looking for to know when you're ready to move on to the next cycle of the evangelism. So it's true when it comes to evangelism. So what are the harvest indicators in this first phase? Some of the things that you're going to be looking for is the spirituality, practical Christian experience of individuals within the church family, unity of the church family. Now you're not going to get everybody in the church united for evangelism, but you need to get a core group at least who are committed to saying, let's see what we can do in evangelism. There's a little church not too far from where we were staying one time and they approached us and asked if they could help if we could help them with some kind of an evangelistic outreach. Uh, the church was an older church. Uh, actually, they didn't have any children in their church anymore, no young families. I think the youngest person in the church was almost 70 years old. So they didn't have any kids, any family, and uh, literally they were dying out. It was a small community. But there was an elder in the church who just really believed that God was not done with that church yet. He felt convicted that God had raised up the church. There was a work to do in that church. So they contacted us and said, is there anything we could do to help? Well, he started with a core group of about four or five people. After church, every single week, he would invite them to come forward, and they had a season of prayer, specifically praying, saying, Lord, please help us here in this church to do something, to do something. Now, it was an older group, so they were limited in what they could do. But they didn't have much income, but they did what they can. They sacrificially gave, so they were able to set aside a little bit of money and they were able to hire a Bible worker. So they brought a Bible worker in for six weeks, and she went to all of the houses in that community. She knocked on the door. She started Bible studies with the people, as many as she could. In addition to that, the church said, well, there is something we can do for the community. And there were a few ladies in the church who were very good cooks. And they said, we're going to offer a special um, cooking school specifically targeting those with high blood pressure or diabetes. So they actually contacted the local clinic in the area and they informed them that if you have any patients that are coming through with high blood pressure or struggling with diabetes, let them know about this free cooking school that we have. Well, of course, the clinic was happy to get some additional resources that they could tell their patients about. And so patients began to contact the church and they set up this special cooking school and we had a number of people from the community that were coming and were building bridges through the health program that they were doing. So they did the Bible studies with the Bible worker. They were doing the health program. Finally, it came time for the evangelistic series, and they actually asked me to do the meeting there. So I said I'd happy to do it. I didn't live too far away. So we sent out flyers in the community to advertise the meetings. Opening night of the evangelistic meeting, and how many people came from the handbills? Unfortunately, zero came from the handbills. But we still had a good group of visitors because of the Bible studies and the church health outreach program. So we went through that evangelistic series. At the end of the meeting, by God's grace, we baptized about two families. One of them had a whole bunch of kids. Suddenly they had to dust out the Sabbath school rooms and pull out the felts and figure out a kids program because now they had kids they had to take care of. So the old folks started teaching the kids. And the family that joined, one of the families that joined, they had never heard these things before. They were so excited about what they heard. So they began to share with their family members and their neighbors how that they became an Adventist. 
And then they came to us, they came to the pastor one day and said, could we do another one of those? They didn't even know what it was. Could we do another one of those Bible long studies that you did for a month? I didn't realize an evangelistic series because they said, we have all these people now that are asking us because they've seen the change in our life. They want to know what's going on. We, we don't really know everything that well. Could you do another one of those series? So the church did another one right away. And that one family brought a whole bunch of people. And we had another baptism at the end. And some new families came in. And they came in and they said, wow, can we do another one of those evangelistic series? And it just kept going. Well, if you were to visit that little church today, you'd want to get there early just to get a parking spot. All of the Sabbath school classes are up. They have a healthy Pathfinder program. Now the church is talking about whether or not they have to rebuild because they're too small right now. All of that happened because a core group said, Lord, we don't believe you've finished with us yet. That there are somebody in this community that has to be reached. And they set up the cycle of evangelism. So we know it works if we follow God's method. So the first phase is personal preparation. The mission focused on the church family uh, is focused on reaching others with the gospel. The next phase that we have is what we call preparing the soil. That's the next one that we have. That's friendship evangelism, community service programs, community seminars such as stop smoking, cooking seminars, so on and so forth, advertising for Bible studies. So now we're beginning to reach out into the community. We're starting to build relationships. Remember those three main areas, make friends, win confidence, share the word. So we're in the making friends category. We are connecting with people. We're ministering to their needs. The harvest indicator for this phase, the number of positive relationships between the church members and the community. Do we have a good program that we can offer them, something meaningful? The number of positive relationships between the members and the non-members. Now, when it comes to these bridging events, I think all of us have been involved, churches have been involved in some kind of a health outreach. Sometimes they don't always result or bring the results that we hope for. Have you ever been involved in a health program at the church or cooking school and you have all these people coming, they're friendly and they're nice, but then they don't come to the evangelistic meeting? You think, man, what's the deal? How do we make that connection? I think one of the keys when it comes to the health program is connecting the visitors with one of the members. So some of the programs that have been successful that I've been involved in is you have a member, hand-picked members, who are there from an evangelistic perspective. And they are seated at each of the tables. And throughout the health program, you give certain assignments for each table to get people to interact with the Adventist. The Adventist has some training. They know what they need to do. They need to build the relationship with the people. Remember one of the programs we did... They gave a recipe for how you can uh, bake a loaf of bread. And the assignment was that week, bake a loaf of bread and then share it with somebody at the table. And, well, the Adventist knew that was his assignment. So he baked several loaves of bread and he contacted everyone that was sitting at his table. He said, I want to share the loaf of bread. And they went over and connected with them at the house. They invited them to eat the loaf of bread together. So they had some fellowship, some sharing time. They began to build a relationship. Then when the evangelistic meeting came, it was the responsibility of that member who connected with the people at his table, his or her table, it's now their responsibility to give a personal invite to that person, inviting them to come as their guest to the prophecy seminar. We actually wrote up a little thing that they could say. They could say, man, we have another seminar coming up at our church. I know you really enjoyed the one that we did on health. 
But this next seminar is actually looking at health principles found in the Bible, in the book of Daniel. And I, it's one of my favorite seminars. You thought the other one was good. Boy, this one is fantastic. you got to come to our Bible health prophecy seminar, whatever we called it. And sure enough, they then invited the people to come. And typically they said, just come for the first night. See if it's something you'd be interested in. And that's usually all it took. So that's something to bear in mind when you have these bridging events. Connect them to people who will invite them to come to the evangelistic series. Okay, the harvest indicator, or actually the third phase now is planting the seeds. I noticed Bible studies is at the top of the list. Personal testimony, drop-off Bible studies, video Bible studies, personal Bible studies, small group Bible studies. You want to get people into the Word. So you might start a small group Bible study at your home. You want to get people into studying the Word. Personal Bible study, video Bible study. Now, a lot of people say, well, you know, that's okay, but for me to give up every Thursday night for the next six months to give a Bible study to somebody, I just don't know if I have the time to do that. Well, what we're asking for is not necessarily 24 Bible studies with one person. The purpose of these Bible studies are just before the evangelistic meetings begin. The purpose of these Bible studies is to awaken an interest in our prophetic truths, to build a relationship with the person, and invite them to come to the evangelistic series. So usually it's three or four Bible studies is all you need. And if you time it right, you do those three or four Bible studies, and then the evangelistic meetings begin, and you have a friend that you could bring to the evangelistic series. I was pastoring a church in Missouri, and one Sabbath morning we got up after church and we said, anybody who wants to uh, be a Bible study instructor, we have a special program, stay after church for 15 minutes. Had about 25 people that stayed behind. They didn't know what they were in for. And we said, well, we're all enrolling you in our Bible study instructors program. Oh, great. They said, what does that mean? I said, well, for the next few weeks, we're going to go through the first three lessons in our Bible study series. We're going to show you how to give a Bible study. Oh, that's great. Never given a Bible study before, but that's great. We're looking forward to it. So we went through that and they learned a lot. And then at the end of that, we said, well, here's the catch. In order for you to receive your certificate of completion to be a Bible instructor, you have to give someone a Bible study. Oh, they said, Pastor, we can't do that. I said, why? They said, well, we don't know anyone who wants to get a Bible study. Where are we supposed to get these people? I said, well, do you know someone that's not a member of the church? Yes, they said. I said, well, why don't you try this? Why don't you go to your family member? Why don't you go to your neighbor? Why don't you go to your friend and say, you know what? I've enrolled in a Bible study instructor's program at my church. But in order for me to graduate and receive my certificate, I need to give somebody a Bible study. It'll take just 30 minutes. Can you help me out? Would that be possible? Can you just give me 30 minutes? And they said, okay, I probably could try. And so the church members actually went to their neighbors and their friends, and they did that very thing. They said, you know what? I enrolled in this Bible instructor program, but I want to get my certificate. I need to give somebody a Bible study. Would you be so kind as to just give me half an hour? And the people said, okay, I suppose I can do that. I remember one person reported back. She asked the neighbor, and the neighbor kind of said, you know, I'm not, I'm not even a Christian. She said, well, that's okay. You don't have to be. If you can just help me out. The neighbor said, okay, I suppose I can give you a half an hour. And so she sat, and all the members sat, and they gave these Bible studies. Well, at the end of each of the Bible studies, we made up some nice response cards that we'd give it to the one that's receiving the Bible study. And the cards had some questions. So the one who received the card, they were kind of critiquing the one that was giving the Bible studies. 
But at the same time, we were learning where they're spiritually. One of the questions, was the presentation biblical? Yes. Did it make sense? Yes. And we asked some other questions related to that. So they give the card, they fill in, they bring the card back to me. And they do three of these Bible studies. And then at the end of those three Bible studies, now let me just preface this by saying, Jesus said you need to be as wise as serpents and as harmless as doves. Well, after they gave three Bible studies, they were now qualified to receive their certificate. We weren't just going to give the certificate to them. We were going to have a whole ceremony to receive their certificate. And the ceremony was to take place opening night of the evangelistic series. And they were to invite the one that helped them get their certificate to their graduation, which was opening night of the evangelistic series. So just before the evangelistic series began, all of these 25 members brought their neighbors, their friends. They came opening night to the evangelistic series because they were going to graduate. Before the evangelistic meeting began, I got up and I said, we're really interested in studying the Bible here. We're so glad that we have some people who have taken an advanced course to study the Bible, and they're going to be receiving their certificates. And of course, you know, the members are there and their friends sitting there and their friends smiling and I call their name and they come up and get the certificate and the neighbor help them. And I even acknowledge them. I say, I'm glad Bob's here to help, you know, John get his certificate and Bob's smiling and everything. And we do that little graduation. And then after that, we say, well, if you're interested, you're welcome to stay. We're going to be looking at a fascinating prophecy that ties in with some of the things that you guys have heard. And we look at Daniel chapter two and we go right into the evangelistic series. And then the people come back the next night, and the next night, and the next night. We had baptisms from people who had never given a Bible study before. But they did three Bible studies. They brought their friend to the evangelistic series. Then the evangelist and God took care of it from there. That's all they had to do. Just awaken an interest in spiritual things. Bring their friend to the evangelistic meeting. You don't have to preach the 2300 days and explain all the minutia of prophetic symbols. All you have to do is share scripture, awaken an interest, build a friendship, invite them to come. That's what our job is with the Bible studies. Does that make sense? Yeah. Now, I'm sure there's some that might want to go on, but in the context of the cycle of evangelism, we're looking to about three or four Bible studies before the start of the evangelistic series. You don't even have to deal with the Sabbath issue. Talk about the inspiration of scripture, the trustworthiness of the Bible. Talk about Daniel chapter 2. Nobody can argue with that. It's all history. It's solid. It's there. Build a relationship with the person and then invite them to come. I remember one of the ladies in the church, she couldn't think of anyone that she could give a Bible study to. She really wanted to get that certificate. So she came up with a creative idea. She called about six evangelical churches. She spoke to the pastors and she said, I've enrolled in a Bible instructor program at my church. But in order for me to graduate, I need to give somebody a Bible study. Will you help me? Well, what is the pastor going to say? Uh, no, I don't want to study the Bible. So what do you know? Her graduation, she had four pastors from the other churches who were there opening night of the evangelistic series. She gave them Bible studies. She had never given anyone a Bible study before. And so these guys had, many of them stayed all the way through the meetings. And they heard things they had never heard before. So... That's the goal of the Bible studies, to awaken an interest, share enough scripture so that they'll want to learn more, build a relationship, bring them to the evangelistic series. So is that something that we think we could do? Three Bible studies? Yeah, probably, right? We'll find somebody that we can ask to help us with to get a certificate. So there's different ways to go about it. That one's worked very well, but there are different ideas out there. That's the goal with the Bible studies. 
Harvest indicators for this one is the amount of direct spiritual outreach by the church towards the community. In other words, how many Bible studies do you have taking place in the community? That's the goal. You want to have as many Bible study opportunities. Then we get to phase four, and that's cultivating for the harvest. This is leading up to your evangelistic series. Some of the things you want to do here is continue the Bible studies. Now, this is if people have not made a decision to come to the evangelistic series. You work with them. You transition to your home or to a neutral place. Let's say you're doing a Bible study with a few folks and they're interested in a small group Bible study. You might want to start one at your home and invite these people to come to that. This is all leading up to the evangelistic meeting. So you need to be selective in what topics you're going to address in these Bible studies. Don't make lesson number three the mark of the beast. All right? The purpose of these Bible studies is to awaken an interest in spiritual things, to build credibility so that when we talk about prophecy, people say, wow, those Adventists, they, they know about prophecy. Remember, one of the pastors that came as a result of those Bible studies, he started preaching the things he heard in the evangelistic series to his church at, it was an elder from the Sunday church that came. He started preaching the stuff in his Sunday class, the things that he was learning in the Adventist church. He started coming to our church on Sabbath and then preaching the stuff on Sunday. And his members, or those in his Bible Sunday class, would come and ask, where did you get all this stuff? They never heard it before. He says, if you want to know Bible prophecy, you've got to go talk to the Adventists. They really know their stuff, is what he said. <laughs> so we had people coming from their church across the street from ours. They'd come over on Sabbath, and they'd go to their church on Sunday and share the things. So anyway, these small group Bible studies is important. Connecting people. Harvest indicator for this phase, the number of consistent in-home personal Bible studies that are given the number of people attending these bridge seminars, these health seminars of the church. When it comes to uh, advertising for the evangelistic meeting, we always encourage sending out handbills because you always hear the story of somebody that found a handbill on the sidewalk in the garbage can and they picked it up and they came out to the meetings and their lives were changed. But typically, our evangelists, we're always looking at new creative handbills and evangelism uh, advertising. Depending where you are in the country, the response is, about two per thousand. Bible Belt, it could be as much as three or four. If you're on the East Coast or the West Coast, it's like one and a half, if you're lucky. Uh, some of the areas like Seattle, it's probably half percent, half a person. I don't know, but uh, it's tough. You can't just base on public evangelism based on advertising anymore. So if you have Bible studies in the community, so one or two per thousand. You send out 20,000 handbills. Depending where you are, you can get between 10 to 20 people showing up, maybe about 15 if you're in the Bible Belt area. In the east and west, secular areas are a little bit harder. But if you have Bible studies, let's just say you have 20 people that are receiving Bible studies and you invite all 20 to come to an evangelistic series, out of those 20s, the typical is that at least 60% of those receiving Bible studies will come opening night to the evangelistic series, maybe even more. So the more Bible studies you can have happening in the community before the evangelistic series, the more of those folks will be there opening night of your evangelistic series. That's why we encourage Bible studies. It's so very important in preparing for the evangelistic meeting. Okay, here are four important guidelines with reference to your short health outreach bridge events. Uh, short bridging events are the best of four to six sessions. You don't want to go too long. Our long programs can wear out the church members and tend to overload those attending. You don't want to sap the energy and desire for the evangelistic series. So your health programs need to be short to the point. Offer bridging events within two months prior to the start of your evangelistic series. 
You don't want to do a bridging event and then not have an evangelistic series for 10 months because those interests will grow cold. You need to connect them and pull them along. Be sure to include a mingling time. I kind of spoke about this a little bit when church members can get to know those attending. Encourage the members to personally befriend one or two guests whom they later will invite to the evangelistic series. Choose bridging events the church has done well in the past. Consider the talents, the abilities of those within the church leading out in these events, as well as the needs of the community you are trying to reach. When it comes to these bridging events, quality is far more important than quantity. It's not the number of the programs, it's the quality of the programs. You want to leave people hungry for more, right? You want them to say, wow, it's over already? I learned so much in this seminar. When are you going to do another one? Versus saying, man, that took forever. That was a long seminar. I'm worn out, right? So short, high-quality programs is the way to go. Make sure that every guest has a church member assigned to him or her who will take a personal interest in him and later invite him to the evangelistic series. That's key. purpose of these bridging events is to build friendships with people so that they have someone to invite to the evangelistic meetings. Okay, then we come to phase five, and this is the exciting phase. This is the harvesting phase. This is we have strong message, appeals for decisions, the public evangelistic seminar at the church. You can do a video seminar if you don't have a live evangelist. You can do a revival series of meetings at the church. Those who don't come out to the evangelistic series, you want to continue with Bible studies in their home. And you start presenting the stronger messages at that point, calling people to make decisions. The harvest indicator for this phase, get a crowd. The number of non-members attending the public seminar, that's the goal. You want to get as many people there opening night of your evangelistic series. Then you allow the Holy Spirit to work. You allow the Word to work. But bring the people out opening night. And then our final phase is the preserving phase. That's spiritual weekly study opportunities, including deeper truth and Christian experience. We have something called spiritual mentors, where each church member or an established church member will befriend one of those new members. And there's a program that they do where they might invite them to come to their house to open up Sabbath on Friday evening. Just think about it. The new members never open up Friday night Sabbath. They don't know what to do. Invite them to spend some time with them Sabbath afternoon to see what's appropriate on the Sabbath, what's not appropriate on the Sabbath. Uh, you want to have weekly opportunities for them to study, so you really encourage them to come to your midweek Bible study. Now, again here, um, it needs to be kind of evangelistically minded, so the topics that's presented at prayer meeting need to be connecting with those new believers, right? Helping to ground them in the truths that they've heard. And if you think about it, these new people have been coming out for five nights a week studying the Bible, and now suddenly the evangelistic meeting's over, and they ask themselves, what am I going to do in the evenings now? I'm not going to go back and do the stuff I used to do. I don't just want to sit home and watch TV the way I used to. What am I to do? Well, there you need to have a study opportunity where they can keep growing, right? That's the nurturing of the new believers. Otherwise, we're going to lose them, and that's what happens. We lose these people because we don't follow up with them after the meetings. Harvest indicators, the practical Christian experience of the new believers. Want to make sure they grow, and that's where small groups is so important. Continued opportunities for studying God's Word. That's a weekly Bible study that you do on a regular basis. In the church that I'm involved with, we do regular Tuesday evening Bible study. And it's really geared for our members, but even more so for the non-members. And we have a lot of non-Avenists that come through our Tuesday evening Bible study many of which had their first contact from an evangelistic series, and they really enjoyed what they heard. They missed part of it, 
so they weren't ready to make a decision, but now they're coming out every Tuesday evening and they're growing and they're building relationships. And not too long ago, we baptized someone who came through our evangelistic series and said, I don't want to be baptized yet at the end of the meetings. I want to learn more. So we had a Tuesday evening Bible study. We went through the whole book of Revelation, verse by verse. It took us like six months, even more. At the end of that, he said, Pastor, I'm ready to get baptized. I know what I believe now. And we baptized him at a men's retreat in a lake. But we had the follow-up meetings. So those follow-up weekly study opportunities are so very important. Sometimes the question is asked, why are the results often so small in evangelism? Uh, you maybe even heard people saying, well, evangelism doesn't work anymore. Some have said, well, we've tried evangelism. People just come in the front door and they go out the back door. All right? Or we've spent all kinds of money and no one was baptized. You heard that before? Baptism, evangelism just doesn't work, they say. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 6 is the answer. He who sows sparingly shall reap also sparingly. He who sows bountifully will reap also bountifully. Often, we don't follow all the steps in the evangelism cycle. We don't plant enough seeds. I think of a farmer out here who decides to grow wheat. And he's never grown wheat before, but he decides this year I'm going to grow wheat. So he plows up his field, and he waits for the wheat to grow, but nothing happens. And so he goes to his farmer friends, and he says to them, I don't understand why nothing's growing in my field. He says, I want to grow wheat. So they ask him, they say, well, what type of fertilizer did you use? And he tells them, and they say, that's pretty good. They say, did you check the pH balance of your soil? He says, yeah, I did. They said, what is it? He tells them, well, that's just right on. Boy, they scratch their heads, they can't figure this out. So finally, uh, they say, we're going to come take a look at your, your field, see what's going on. So early one morning, all of these pickup trucks pull out into this man's field, and all the guys get out, and they got their caps and their hats and their boots, and they walk around, and surrounded by fields of green, all the neighbors have wheat growing, but there's nothing in our friend's field. And all the farmers are scratching their head, and they can't figure this out, and and our farmer friend's standing there, and he's just puzzled either. And, and finally, one of his friends say to him, Say, what, what type of seed did you plant anyway? Well, with that, our farmer friend says, well, you know, I was hoping for a harvest. I was praying for a harvest, but I guess I didn't plant any seed. Not a true story. <laughs> there isn't a farmer alive that would expect a harvest without first planting seed. But isn't it true of the church? We pray for a harvest, we hope for a harvest, we send out some handbills, and then nobody comes, and we think, oh, Evangelism doesn't work. Well, evangelism does work, but you can only harvest what you sow, right? We haven't gone through all the phases. We haven't done the Bible studies. We haven't done the bridging events. We haven't built relationships. We don't have anyone to invite to come to the evangelistic meeting. Well, then how are we expecting success? So the seed is in the harvest. We need to remember that. Um, Galatians 6, 7, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man sows that he shall also reap. So if we sow sparingly, we will reap sparingly. Three reasons then why evangelism sometimes does not work. Number one, we don't plant enough seeds, so we reap what we sow, we don't prepare for the harvest. That's number the one reason why we don't plant enough seeds. Matter of fact, we've met, worked with churches before and we asked them, we said, well, what have you done for pre-work? And they said, well, we haven't done anything. So do you have a plan? They don't have a plan. So we set them up and they set this all together. We said, well, don't do an evangelistic. We've actually told them, don't do an evangelistic now. Don't waste your money now. Wait for 10 months. Go through all of these different phases. 
and then do the evangelistic meeting. It will be more successful. Give it a little bit of time. So, you know, it's one thing to do evangelism. It's more important to prepare for evangelism if it's to be successful. Think of the funnel idea. At the top of the funnel, the mouth of the funnel, this is where all the contacts are for the church. These are those attending our seminars or friends the church members have. Down here, these are the people that actually receive the Bible studies before the evangelistic meeting. Here's where the evangelistic meeting starts. And down here, these are the people who make decisions for the truth. Well, if you want many decisions for the truth down here, what do you need to have up here? Very large mouth, right? So we want to have a long list of interests that the church is working for. And of course, people will grow at different speeds, spiritually speaking. So there might be somebody on your list that you've been working with for years before they actually come to the evangelistic series. There might be people that you just make contact with and they're really interested in spiritual things and they're ready to come and attend a prophecy seminar. So you need to recognize that people are moving at different speeds. So give them space to grow. But you want to have a nice big list of people that you're praying for as a church. You're asking God to intervene in their lives. You're looking for opportunities to win their confidence, to build a relationship with them. So we're always looking. We engage. We're looking to see where the Spirit is moving. Reason number two why evangelism sometimes fails, we forget that the seed is in the harvest, so we take a break from evangelism instead of continuing the cycle, letting success grow. This is important. Just like the story I told you a little earlier, we did one evangelistic meeting and those new people came and their friends were asking questions. We did another evangelistic series. Now, if we had said, well, you know what, we don't want to do another evangelistic series for another two years. Well, by that time, all of their friends would have lost interest in learning more. So you've got to keep the cycle going. I remember we were doing an evangelistic series once in Missouri and somebody showed up from the community and he went through all the meetings. He sat there and listened to everything. Nice guy, friendly. At the end of the meetings, we handed out a little response cards. I remember one of the questions on the card said, what is your religious affiliation? And he wrote in big, bold letters. He said, the Holy Roman Catholic Church. And then he put in brackets, I will always be a Catholic. He said, okay, well, we know where he stands. The meeting was over. We kept going with the church activities. A few months later, we did another evangelistic series. And guess who showed up? The same man. He went through all the evangelistic series, second time. And at the end of the meetings, we handed out the cards, just as we had done before. And one of the questions, religious affiliation, this time he wrote, Catholic. I thought, okay, we're making progress. <laughs> that was as far as he went. A couple months went by, we did another evangelistic meeting. Same guy showed up, went through all the meetings. At the end, we handed out the cards. He wrote, when it came to religious affiliation, he wrote, was Catholic, but thinking about being an Adventist. <laughs> Took three evangelistic meetings. So you want to keep that cycle going, right? A farmer plants his seed, and he might have a bumper crop one year, or he plants and he doesn't get as big of a harvest as he wants. doesn't mean he stops farming. He just plants again and keeps things going. So in the evangelism cycle, some years you'll have an abundant harvest of souls. Other years you'll have a little less but you just want to keep the cycle going. Probably about eight years ago, um, Pastor Doug asked if I would lead a church plant in the Granite Bay area in Sacramento. It's one of the uh, suburbs. It's a growing area. And uh, we were going to plant a church in this area. So we started with a core group of about 15 members. I remember we met in somebody's living room and we planned and we prayed and we organized and we said, all right, well, let's, let's really implement 
the cycle of evangelism from the very beginning. Everything we do, let's implement the cycle of evangelism. So from the start, we did that. We did at least an evangelistic meeting once a year. Most years we did two evangelistic meetings, one in the spring, one in the fall. Started with 15 people. We kept the cycle going over and over and over again. And I know churches are different. This was unique. This is a church plant. Typically with a church plant, the people who are at the church plant really wanted to grow. That's why they're there. They're very evangelistically minded. And so we had a lot of lay involvement. I know every church is a little different, but just a great group of people who are really committed. And eight years ago, we started with 15 people. Today, the Granite Bay Church has a membership of over 500. We have 600 people attending every week. And we have thousands of people watching online. Started from just a small core group of 15. And it was interesting. People said to us, you're working in one of the toughest neighborhoods. Granite Bay is a very affluent area. It's one of those places you can't even get to the house because there's the gate. And there's a whole bunch of houses, gated communities. So you'd have to wait until someone drives out and then you slip in the gate because <laughs> they don't have the code. But we really had to focus on health outreach and relationships and building our evangelistic uh, interest through personal contact and Bible studies. We brought in a Bible worker. We did a lot of evangelism, and it works. Some years we baptized 45, 50 people in a year. Some years it was a little bit less, but we kept the cycle going, and the Lord is blessed. So I know the cycle of evangelism works. We've seen it work. It really does make a difference. Reason number three, we have weak, disjointed links in the evangelism cycle. You've probably heard the saying before, a chain is only as strong as its weakest link, right? So every part of the cycle of evangelism is important. Uh, in closing then, how should the corporate cycle, how often should the corporate cycle of evangelism repeat? Well, we suggest every 12 months, you might want to have one major evangelistic seminar once a year. And when the church has got that down, then you can maybe have a mini evangelistic series or revival that same year at a six-month interval. Now, we kind of, we had a number of people that were coming into the church, so it was hard for them to commute. So we did evangelism a little different. We clustered most of the week meetings around the weekend, so we give folks time off. But what we did is we required the new people who came in from the last evangelistic series to actually be the main helpers in that second evangelistic series. The church members, they were the backup support. So what would happen is a person would come to an evangelistic series, they'd hear for the first time, they'd get all excited. Then the next evangelistic, they're the ones that are bringing their friends. They're taking care of the program. They're welcoming the people. They're handing out the literature. They're very much involved. Well, they get to hear the whole thing again the second time. And it doesn't burn out the church members. And we actually had church members in charge of the new people kind of connecting with them, getting them organized. So that's the way we're able to keep it going because you can wear the church out if you have the same people doing the same thing over and over again. So you want to start using those new people and get them connected into evangelism so they get used to it and say, well, this is what we do as a church. We do evangelism. Personal cycle, different plants ripen for harvest at different rates. Lettuce, pumpkin, tomatoes, strawberries, and so on. They're all different. People grow at different rates. So we want to give people time to grow. If somebody does not make a decision, at the end of your evangelistic series, keep the relationship going. Maybe they'll be ready next time, right? You do the evangelistic series. So don't do the scorched earth policy where you put so much pressure on the person to make a decision that if they don't make the decision, they don't ever want to see you again, right? You want to at least build that relationship so you can invite them back. 
The cycle of evangelism. How does the corporate cycle relate to the personal cycle? Just real quick. Recognize that as you go through the corporate cycle, that's the cycle that the church does, you're working with people at different stages. So give them time to grow. Keep the cycle repeating at frequent intervals in order to harvest people as they become ready. So that's why at least once a year, but maybe you could do one every six months, or at least a smaller one, once and then a bigger one every year. In summary then, what have we looked up? First of all, Christ's method. Uh, friendship that wins confidence, then you share the word. What are the keys to winning somebody's confidence? The three F's. All right, you meet their needs, you build a relationship with them till the point where they are willing to what? Share a genuine concern that they have. And then what do you say? I understand the way you feel. Others have felt that way before. But I have found, what have you found? God answers prayer. It doesn't matter what the problem is. Prayer is still the answer, right? Call that the three F's. It's also very helpful when dealing with uh, controversy. If someone wants to argue with you about a particular doctrine or whatever it might be, you can say, well, I understand the way you feel. Others have felt the same way when they were studying this truth. But I have found that through prayer, God will help guide us into a clear understanding. Remember the first time I heard the three F's in the context of controversy and how you deal with it. I thought, wow, this is great. I've got to try this out. So I went home and tried to get into an argument with my wife. <laughs> try and get her mad about something. And then just the right time I said, honey... I understand the way you feel. She kind of looked at me. <laughs> I said, others have felt the same in your situation. <laughs> but they have found. I came up with some excuse. She kind of like, hmm. A little while later, got into a little bit of an argument. I said, here's another chance. I said, honey, I understand the way you feel. She said, don't try that on me. You tried that once before. <laughs> she caught on. <laughs> but it does work when you're working with someone, a Bible study, and there's some resistance. Understand the way you feel. Others have felt that way, but I found, and you can kind of lead the conversation from there. So the three F's do work, all right? In different contexts, you can use them. <laughs> Summary then, Jesus gives us the example of prepare, preach, and then preserve. The three phases of the evangelism cycle. Prepare, preach, and preserve. Sharing God's word is like planting a garden. It must repeat in order to be successful. And one of the most important things that a church can do. An evangelism cycle is the best plan for evangelism. It follows God's instruction of seed sowing. It builds success from year to year because the seed is in the harvest. Final verse, cast your bread upon the waters for you will find it after many days. Now in the Bible, what does bread often represent? What does water represent? Multitudes and nations and kindreds and tongues. What do you think it means when it says, cast thy bread upon the waters? Preach to the people. Share the word, right? You can do that through preaching. You can do that through Bible study. Share the word. Get it out there. You might not see results right away, but still, share the word any way you can. Give uh, a serving to seven and also to eight, for you do not know what evil will come upon the earth. You don't know what's going to happen in their life or what situation they might find where the things you have said will come back to them and you'll have an opportunity to witness and build with them. So evangelism then is sharing the word, sharing Jesus with somebody else. That's the core of evangelism. Well, that's the evangelism cycle. All right, we've got some key things. I think it's in the book. We're not going to have time to look at it, but does your church have an evangelism cycle? If it doesn't, what can you do to set up an evangelism cycle? 
if you already have an evangelism cycle, what can we do to fine-tune and perfect our evangelism cycle? Uh, how is it organized? How can we get more people involved in the evangelism cycle? I still think it's one of the most important things a church can do, is that ongoing evangelism cycle. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.